Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Programme on Governance and Local Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. Hosting this show is GLD's founding director, Ellen Last, who will be joined by Ukrainian scholar Timothy Brick from the Kiev School of Economics. Timothy is also a co-founder of the public restaurant Urban Space 500 and a chairman of the supervisory board of CEDAS, an independent think tank and community in Ukraine, working on social development since 2010. In this episode, Ellen and Timothy talk about local governance taking place in Ukraine today, by first taking a step back to discuss governance before Russia's invasion, namely on how Ukraine moved from centralization towards decentralization after 2014, when local communities started to take power over their own lives and found a way to share resources locally thanks to decentralization reforms. Timothy also explains how the Ukrainian defense, which surprised the rest of the world somewhat, did not occur overnight as it might have seen from the outside. It was a seven-year preparation on how the society should organize to protect and defend oneself and one's community. Finally, Timothy informs us about the work they do at the Kiev School of Economics in order to address the challenge of loss of access to education and academic competence. We hope that you find this episode interesting, and don't forget to like, share, and subscribe if you do. So, Timothy, thank you very, very much for joining us. As I've noted, I'm a big fan, I guess, in a way, but I'm incredibly impressed by all that you and your colleagues are doing at the Keep School of Economics and all that you've managed to do. And, and quite honestly, by the rigor and the intellectual debate that you're bringing to the fore, I've learned a lot in the last month or so from you and your colleagues, and I look forward to learning from you now as well. So thank you for taking time to have this conversation with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for your invitation. Um, you know, it has been our goal to, to talk about Ukraine, to make Ukrainian voices heard, and the fact that kind of have responded to our call and invited me. It's a, it's a great pleasure for me. Uh, so I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thanks. So what I wanted to do today actually was to talk about something I'm not hearing as much about. We hear a lot about military strategy. We hear a lot about kind of national level rallying and mobilization. And I think all of that's incredibly important and noteworthy. But what I don't hear about as much is how local governance is actually taking place now, right? Because we've got both population movements, we have obviously sort of wartime needs, we have the mobilization of security forces and others who would be normally be on the streets and patrolling and into other functions of trying to keep the state secure. So I'm interested in understanding how governance is taking place today. But to start, I want to sort of step us back just a little bit and think about how governance has taken place before the war. And one of the things that I found really interesting, you've written a piece with your colleagues about decentralization and made an argument that decentralization, which starts in around 2015, had led to increased trust in the areas that became decentralized in institutions or state institutions at the local level, even if not at the national level, right? So you sort of draw that distinction, I think is a very, very important one. So that maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about that process and what it meant 
already on the ground for how people have been mobilized and thinking about community? Thanks. I agree with you. I think it's a very important topic and uh, not so many people are talking about it. And I think there are two reasons for that. So one, obviously, is because, you know, there is still war and we just don't have a lot of data to be very confident when we are talking about uh, local governance. Now we have some anecdotal evidence, we have some sporadic data, but it's not quite systematic. But there is another reason, and I think it goes deeper into how we as scholars and policymakers, how we construct knowledge, how we do research. For many years, policy perspective has been in limbo. It has been avoided by many Ukrainian scholars for no specific you know, reasons. It's not about some specific agenda. I just think it's a matter of habit. Quite a lot of Ukrainian scholars, they used to spend a lot of time and resources to study things like you know, national identity, culture, linguistic practices, language preferences, voting behavior media consumption, but not a lot of people addressed policies. I mean, I have my own hypothesis. I cannot tell you that it has been rigorously proven. It's just my uh, gut feeling. I think that for many years, policy dimension was not so crucial in Ukraine at all. You know, it was highly centralized state with uh, charismatic politicians who decided mm -hmm. policies in their high cabinets. So there was no room for discussion so and there was no demand for scholars to talk about policies for many years so a lot of things changed after 2014 after the euromaidan revolution and here i will come to the second part of your question yeah because you asked about some uh, historical patterns mm -hmm. what happened with policies in ukraine historically what happened with local governance so before 2014 ukraine was quite a centralized society on many levels we used to care about president, government, parliament as three key institutions that debated policies somewhere in Kyiv, behind closed doors, maybe with some influence of shady deals and oligarchic actors. And a lot of significant policies, you know, in terms of labor market or healthcare or taxes were decided in Kyiv and kind of accepted by people who lived in other regions of Ukraine. And then people who lived in different regions of Ukraine, they were either happy or not happy <laughs> with these policies. And they uh, debated whether, you know, this particular president represents our region, our interest or not. So there were quite a lot of debates about it, specifically because people did not have a lot of influence of what was happening in, in the central cabinets. After 2014, after the Euromaidan revolution, a lot of things changed. The political landscape was changed, but also the worldview of people who came to the new government and new parliament and also a lot of NGOs uh, became visible. New generations of politicians appeared and they kind of changed this game. There was a huge reform installed in 2014, which is called decentralization reform. And this reform provided a lot of resources, responsibilities, and freedoms to uh, local administration. So basically what happened is that small towns and villages all across Ukraine, in West, East, South, it doesn't matter, different regions, they were allowed and they were encouraged to create the so-called amalgamated communities. So basically the idea that people who live you know, in small villages and towns 
they had a chance to talk to each other, to decide on new borders, to shake hands and to say like, look, we live in this village and we want to become partners with our neighbors. We will create a new community, Gromada. And this new community will receive more economic resources and more power how to spend these resources. So for instance, it's about personal tax income. So jobs, some firms, factories, and they pay wages to their employees, and then they pay taxes for these wages. So 60% of these personal income taxes are now retained in communities. They don't go to the central government. So what was observed, and it's interesting that this process was gradual. So communities received this opportunity to form new boundaries, but not all of them accepted this idea immediately. There was some gradual process. So in the beginning, about 100 communities emerged, then next year, couple more hundreds, then couple more hundreds. So it made a very interesting case when Ukraine was basically divided between different types of uh, administrative units. Some Ukrainian territories created this amalgamated gromadas, and some were lacking behind. So now we as scholars, we basically have this unique data. We can track in real time these changes in administration, but also we can correlate these changes with other data because we also collected data about how many taxes they collected, how did they spend these taxes. We conducted surveys. We were asking people whether they trust to their local government or not, whether they're happy with their local government or not. So we were able to kind of divide our sample in the communities which went through this amalgamation in the beginning and communities that were slower in this amalgamation. And what we saw in our own research, that uh, the speed of amalgamation actually matters, that those communities that amalgamated faster, respondents who live in these communities, they also increased in their trust to local authorities, not to national authorities, not to president, not to government, but specifically to, you know, the local administration. We also noticed that these people were more happy with uh, family doctors during COVID, for instance. And in general, we see that the local budgets of these communities increased and the spending on uh, welfare increased. So in many respects, the quality of the government improved, the satisfaction of people who live there improved. And that's why my colleagues and I, we believe that this was one of the significant factors which improved the resilience of Ukrainians. So in the face of this new terrible war, a lot of Ukrainians did not run away. They volunteered to territorial defenses. They wanted to protect their own communities. And maybe as you saw in news, there were many gromadas where, where people actually were protesting and mm -hmm. fighting for, uh, to, for freedom of their local mayors. So it was uh, fantastic to see this news, you know, that people were occupied by Russian troops, but then they, they were gathering on the streets and they demanded their mayors to be rescued. And I think it tells a lot. It's not just about national mobilization. It's not just about patriotism, but it's also about a sense of being the one community which has something to fight for. You know, they, they have resources, they're happy with the mayors, and they don't want anyone else to come and take it away from them.
No, I did find it absolutely fascinating. And actually, I think it's really interesting, too, that people who study decentralization and think about it often think about it as you gain more trust at the local level and it filters upward towards the national level, right? And I think one of the things that you're doing is drawing into question that, but also turning the spotlight on the importance of of this sense of community. I mean, the things that may be partly about the relation with the state, but are a lot about the relation among those who are in those villages, those who are in those communities that have come together. I mean, I think that's part of what I see when I read it and, and when I'm listening to you talk about it, which is fascinating. Yeah, I agree. We also were surprised to see this divergence that respondents did report that they trust to local governments increased, but we did not see much about trust to national institutions. Yeah, so this spillover effect we did not observe. There is still an open question. Maybe we just need more time. Maybe this spillover effect mm-hmm. would, can happen later. Right now, the, any research is going to be contaminated with the effect of war. Right now, we have a lot of trust and support of president and parliament, but it's kind of rallying around the flag effect. And it would be very difficult to disentangle this effect from the effect of reforms, policies, smart governance at the local level. So I don't know. But I agree with you. It's interesting that in Ukraine, at least, we see this quite unique situation that local trust does not guarantee sort of a national trust spillover effects. I think it's, a, it's an interesting point for political debates in a way that some politicians in Ukraine, they would be afraid of decentralization and they would make an argument that decentralization leads to, you know, kind of separatism mm-hmm. or disrespect to national government. I think it's not necessarily the case as long as people keep attending elections, as long as people keep working, keep paying taxes, keep volunteering during the war, I, I, I think there is no uh, threat. I think it's just a matter of sort of adjustment that people finally, finally, they, they receive this opportunity to live in their communities and be, be responsible for what they do. And, 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 and they receive new resources and new freedoms. So of course, there was some kind of jump, this increase in, in trust. So I would not be afraid that there is any challenge to national governance. Yeah, in fact, I mean, it's, it's not the case that you show there's a decrease in trust in the, towards national government, right? So, I mean, that, then Absolutely. you could say, okay, there's a, there's a problem, right? You know, it sort of shifts from being trust to the nation to, or national government to, to the local. But basically what you're saying is if the national government wants to gain trust, it has to do the things that gain trust in and of itself, right? It can't expect that the local level being successful necessarily transfers up. And that's a very different issue than thinking that it's a, a zero-sum game that either your local trust is high or national trust is high. Absolutely. And I also, well, I want to throw another idea, which is a bit of speculation now, because we have not yet collected new data and analyze it. It's, again, more my hypothesis. Mm-hmm. But It is something that I really like to pursue in my research. In Ukraine, there has been quite a lot of debate about competition and political competition between macro regions. So the political debate has been shaped like there is Western Ukraine or Eastern Ukraine, and these are different entities. Some people speak more Ukrainian language, some people speak more Russian language, and maybe there is a competition, if not polarization, between these regions. 
So I think, and I have always believed that this uh, narrative is detached from reality, because in reality, people do not live in macro regions. People live in their towns, people live in their villages. So there must be some sort of a mediator here. Yeah? So whatever big political debate or political campaign is going to be in Ukraine soon, I'm quite confident that the local dimension would be very important. And I think that finally, we will get rid of this popular and yet unrealistic cliches about uh, macro regions. Yeah, that's interesting. That's very interesting. The other thing I'm, I'm, when we're thinking about how people live locally and how they are governed locally, we talked about how the demonstrations go out in support of the mayors. And of course, part of this is about the relationship between, you know, individuals in the villages and towns and the local sort of state government. But you also talked, for example, about trust in family doctors during COVID and in other ways in which we can think about the sets of trust in the, and even the sets of different authorities or actors who matter. So can you, again, sort of focusing first on the pre-war period, just give me a sense, at least in the places that you feel comfortable talking about or know best, about what is really under the role of the state and, and how are other religious or other sets of elites, how do they matter? Yeah, so I think there has been gradual movement of decentralization. I cannot say that it happened overnight because of one specific reform. There was a fertile uh, ground behind it. But 2014 was definitely a moment that mobilized a lot of resources and, and made a lot of change. And in 2014, there were several important reforms that simultaneously and kind of in ecosystem man manner uh, changed a lot. So we already talked about decentralization, but there is another reform which is called public procurement reform. So basically in very simple words, it's about uh, selling and buying goods and services for government, you know, and it can be so many different things. For instance, you want to buy breakfast for schools in your region, or you want to buy a car for a hospital in public hospital in the region, or you want to buy a piece of paper for printer in, in all offices of uh, public administrators. It's a lot of money. It was, uh, according to different estimation, uh, from 10 to 15% of GDP of Ukraine. And for many years, it was argued that it was quite a shady and gray zone for corruption. And apparently, after 2014, a real revolution happened installing the online system uh, called Prozorro, which means in Ukrainian um, transparent. But also it's a game of, it's a twist, it's a game of words, Prozorro, like Zorro, like this brave guy who fights against uh, rich <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, so the idea is, is now everything goes through a transparent online auctions where people bid to provide these services and products. And it really changed the landscape of local business a lot because now so many new businesses, small and medium, receive this new opportunity to compete for a in, in a very large sector of economy. It was not possible before, but it became possible now. And it really improved the, again, the spirit using the sociological cliches, some sort of a spirit of capitalism but also it improved practices of competition and it actually provided more economic opportunities and resources for local businessmen. So it really shaped 
how people started to perceive Ukraine. They felt that, okay, we live in our city or region and we can actually compete economically, we can provide resources. So it, it improved the perception of, of the government and business climate. Then we talked about, uh, oh, or did you want to ask something? Yeah, just just really quickly on that for a moment, because it improves the business climate. Does it also lead to basically new business cultures and, and organizations? And does it change the actual the power dynamics within these localities as well? It did uh, to some extent in several manners. So there are two parallel processes within this prozoro. So one is about auctions to procure goods and services. For instance, uh, it's also about gas. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about energy supplies. And it really shaped the um, composition of elites in Ukraine because now it, it became very difficult to monopolize energy market. And it influenced the composition of business elites. But there was another process in parallel, which is about selling toxic assets. This means that the government itself can be the owner of some toxic assets or bad assets. Let's say if the bank going bankrupt and now government has all the assets of this bank, including some loans or, I don't know, loans for apartments or elevators or uh, factories that are bankrupt as well. So the government tries to sell it through the auction. And previously, before this reform, it was also a gray zone. So some oligarchs or a very rich person could buy an asset with very little money and the asset could be very valuable. Yeah. But with this new way of selling toxic assets, it limited the ability of uh, corruption and uh, oligarchs to, to exchange goods in this gray zone. So yes, in totality, this reform has shaken the um, composition of, of business and political elites. And that's why there were a lot of attempts to roll it back. So this is one of the most successful reforms in Ukraine, but it was attacked publicly in media campaigns. It was attacked by different you know, members of government and parliament. So a lot of people were not happy with this reform at all, but I'm very happy that it has survived through so many years. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you asked about changes at local level. Also, there were changes in healthcare reform. Uh, we did not have family doctors, but now we do have them, which was a very significant change in the first place. Territorial defense itself emerged as a big part of Ukrainian military strategy. It also emerged in 2015 after occupation of Crimea and occupation of Donbass. It became uh, clear that Ukrainian army will be successful if it relies on local units and uh, territorial defense volunteers. And uh, our previous president uh, made quite a lot of improvement in this respect, but also current president Zelensky, he also doubled down on, on this reform by providing even more resources and increasing the number of territorial defense units uh, in Ukraine. In terms of NGO, local NGOs were flourishing. Again, due to the occupation of Crimea and Donbass, we quickly realized that the government itself was quite slow and inefficient in many respects, sort of to provide some logistics. For instance, if you have displaced people, 
these displaced people, they have to be transported, they have to be hosted somewhere, they need to, to get emotional support. And unfortunately, you know, centralized government was not ready to this task. So that's why quite a lot of new NGOs emerged at the local level just to facilitate displaced people, just to facilitate, to help veterans, for instance. Interestingly, to facilitate logistics. Because in 2015, unfortunately, our army was not well equipped. So a lot of volunteers had to create new NGOs to purchase helmets, to purchase bulletproof vests somewhere, let's say, in Slovakia, in Poland, or in the Netherlands, and then organize logistics to deliver this specific helmet to one specific village somewhere in East Ukraine. And it's a chain of uh, managerial decisions. And quite a lot of people were, have been engaged in all that. And, uh, so on many, many levels, local activities were mushroomed in, mm -hmm. in uh, all Ukraine from 2014 till present. Uh, you mentioned religious groups. Absolutely. They also were quite important in shaping local activities. Talk more, but please interrupt <laughs> No, me. this is a, this is great. And, and I think that you mentioned they mushroomed. It seems to me like we really saw a pluralization, right? And lots of different actors. And some of them, when you're talking about buying bulletproof vests, I mean, it sounds very familiar to what's, what's taking place now, including what Kiev School of Economics is doing. But in many ways, it seems that the last seven years have been, I don't know, preparing, but they've, they have provided a different set of infrastructure locally than we might have had if this was 2013. Absolutely. Yes, I, I can agree with this statement 100%. So I think a lot of people from outside of Ukraine were surprised with this Ukrainian resilience. And there was an assumption that it happened overnight, you know, like Ukrainians woke up <laughs> during the Russian attack and decided to defend their country. But in fact, it was a seven year of step by step incremental process of preparations of developing these new tactics, new practices. I'll give you one example. Maybe your audience will like this. Mm -hmm. So a few days before this invasion, I installed a Telegram bot. So we use Telegram in Ukraine uh, quite a lot. And I installed this bot and the bot was basically a checklist of preparations. Everything you need to do in case of war. Pack your backpack, purchase your medical kit. What is the address of the nearby hospital? All this information was in my Telegram bot. And this Telegram bot was created by some volunteers, uh, IT guys who spend their time to, to create this bot. And this is just one tiny example. Uh, in, in fact, I was surrounded by all this information, booklets, telegram bots, practices. During the first days of this invasion, I just called my, I didn't know what to do, but I called my friend and my friend called to my friend. And apparently we, we were given all the information about shelters, about what to do, about how to buy gasoline, about how to protect ourselves. So it's not like this resilience um, emerged over one day. We just kind of activated right. all these networks and all these toolkits, which were already there. They were just waiting on the background to be activated. No, that makes a lot of sense. I guess the question for you is, so now I do want to shift to how things are, 
how things are working now and what local governance looks like. I don't expect you to know, and obviously you haven't had a chance to do research all the way across the country, so you can focus locally if, if that works best for you or tell us what sets of different practices and understandings we might have. But I'd like to get a sense of who's governing now, right? How is governance taking place? How is healthcare being delivered? How is security being delivered? Because, of course, it's not the only security that doesn't stop with, with the war. So, so how do we understand where governance takes place? So I will try to structure my answer in two parts. One is more strategic, philosophical, mm -hmm. and another is more empirical and some what's happening on the ground. Perfect. So from this strategical perspective, now we have a very counterintuitive set of actions. Ukraine, the strategies now is to find a balance between centralization and decentralization. So on the one hand, our conversation for the past 30 minutes was about decentralization. It's good. It's necessary. It provides resilience. So we kind of, we all know that decentralization matters. At the same time, there will be a lot of efforts for centralization. And it is also good because centralization makes sense during war, during crises. So you really need to have some logistical hubs and some coordination to know you know, how to deliver important things, how to move tanks, how to uh, use railways, you know, to transfer people from one city which is bombed to another city which is not bombed, or where to build the first shelter. These things, they require a lot of centralization. So that's why I anticipate that some decentralization will be rolled back, but I think it's fine. That's mm -hmm. why I used this word counterintuitive. So I, I think there is a need for some centralization during the war. And we see it, and now going to more practical uh, dimensions. So first we see the so-called military administrations. Yes, yeah? so in all regions of Ukraine, everything is still governed by local mayors and village mayors, and we have heads of administrations. But we also have this new parallel line of the military administration. They are appointed by the president and everything is now in coordination with the military administration, which makes sense. We also see that supplies are working quite well. So train stations, uh, train railways, they're working, cars are working. Basically, quite a lot of uh, coordination, again, comes from the central government. In terms of local government, what is happening now, it's more about humanitarian crisis. So local towns and local villages, they try to accept displaced people, people who were mm -hmm. forced to go from the East Ukraine. And most of them moved to Central and Western Ukraine, which is more safe. And some of them moved to uh, other countries like Poland mm -hmm. or Moldova. So now, this is a very big challenge for local administrations, how to host all these displaced people, how to offer them welfare, how to, you know, maybe help them with food and water. So these things are often decided in a kind of ad hoc manner. And local uh, mayors, they try to do everything. You know, they ask uh, central government for help, but also they accept help of international donors like Red Cross, they also engage with local volunteers quite a lot. And we, uh, my colleague, so I have a friend and a colleague who works with me, and she made some 
interviews already with uh, representatives of local Hermadas. And what they said, that they're all doing their best to adjust, but they are lacking one thing. They're lacking kind of information flow in terms mm -hmm. of best practices. So let's say some Hermadas were very quick in finding the way how to accommodate new displaced people. But some others did not how to do it. And they are thriving for this um, knowledge. They ask us for algorithms. They ask for booklets. They ask for step-by-step -step information, like what should we do to, to make uh, our lives better? So I think this will be the next step of what our government will be doing is to try to facilitate this information uh, spread between local governments. But uh, to answer again to your question, what is happening? Uh, I would say for simplicity, we can divide the country in two parts, you know, the part which is under shelling and bombing and the part which is not. Whenever something is under shelling, it's, it's terrible and it's more about ad hoc resistance. So city mayors, they don't sleep, they try to provide information, coordinate. They are very technologically savvy and intelligent. They use Telegram, they use Instagram to talk to people to fight with disinformation, to show their presence, to uplift spirits of people. And a lot of volunteers are working and coordinating with them. You know, there are people on their cars who try to deliver uh, medicine, food, water to everywhere they can. And then another part is where people are more safe. And then the lives go goes on as usual. You know, even here in Kiev, subways are working light traffics are working yeah. my girlfriend and i we we drink coffee in our favorite cafe and we eat croissants so things are kind of okay in other places this is interesting thinking about the almost two very different existences right and and the ways in which they obviously intersect it's not that people who are drinking coffee in the in the cafe are oblivious to the to the rest of the issues as you know better than i do but I'm curious, when you were talking about the transfer of information across, across municipalities or across different localities, that makes sense to me. It also seems to me that, that the coordination requirements and the coordination challenges. So it's great that we talked about the pluralization and the kind of the mushrooming of lots of different organizations that can be activated. But to make sure that not everybody is looking for housing for refugees while there's nothing that's being done to deal with health issues or mental health issues. So trying to figure out that set of coordination, are there either national level efforts at that specifically, or are there, my hypothesis would be that places that had had the decentralization and, and have already had to coordinate over one thing would actually be better placed to coordinate again. But I'm just curious as to what do we know about that? Yeah, so again, it's kind of difficult to disentangle now because Coincidentally, research also showed that those gromadas which emerged, those communities that amalgamated first, they also were disproportionately present in Western Ukraine. And there was a hypothesis that it's not just about anticipation of new taxes, but it's also about some sort of a history and culture of mm. uh, local administration and governance. So these places, they used to be under Austrian Empire, so they still have some memory of local administration, best practices. And also these places are quite geographically 
close to Poland, to Slovakia, to Czech Republic, to Germany. So people go back and forth and they know about these uh, practices of local governance. So now exactly these places are also, they became the hubs for displaced people. They also became hubs for people who want to migrate, who are refugees. And they, at the same time, they were the first promadas to amalgamate. And at the same time, some of them are quite big and important cities with uh, strong charismatic leaders, like the city of Lviv with, uh, with quite famous mayor. So there are so many different factors which influence their activities that it's much safer to say that, you know, everything matters because <laughs> we, we, we don't have uh, methodological means to disentangle all these factors. So let's say that everything matters. What we see that some of them became almost leaders in this new period of Ukrainian history. I'll give you an example. This uh, city mayor of Lviv, in one of his interviews, he said that they were, they were getting ready almost a few months before the invasion. So they were anticipating some sort of a crisis and they set up a special working group to brainstorm ideas about what if, what if uh, we will have war, what should we do? By doing this, they were kind of prepared better than others. And then after accepting, implementing their ideas and accepting a lot of IDPs, they now more resilient and they are ready to share this experience with other Romadas, with other communities. So yeah, there is, seems to be sort of a, a kind of historical predisposition that some Romadas happen to be a bit more prepared, a bit more resourceful, a bit more in this culture of local administration. And when the crisis uh, happened, they became more ready and uh, more, how to say it, Almost more effective. and now yeah. they will be leading in these um, developments. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. That makes, like I said, a lot of sense. And it's, again, what I really appreciate is getting a kind of a longer term perspective on this. Like you said, it wasn't, an, it wasn't a resilience that came up overnight, even though that seemed that, that way to, I think, many people from the outside. And as you as you noted, and, and we hear all the time, people were surprised that Ukraine has been able to sort of stand as strong as it has, and quite honestly grateful for that. But I'm also, I want to make sure that we give you a chance to tell us anything that I've forgotten to ask you about, or things that we need to know and understand. You know, like uh, in papers, they always say that the contribution of this paper is twofold. So I will try to make <laughs> the, uh, the statement, which is twofold. So first, this is a very rare occasion to talk about policies and decentralization. And I think my first message that I would like to send across is that we need to have more of these conversations. They are clearly underestimated, undervalued, and it's great to have 40, 60 minutes talk only about policies and decentralization. So this is the first time ever I'm doing that. And I think we should do it more and more. We definitely should pay attention to policies and to governance. So this is the first part of my answer. And the second, there is still one dimension. It is also about policy. And it is also about governance, which we did not cover, but I think it is important. And it is, I'm very biased because it's also close to my, you know, to my heart and to what I do. 
it's education, education and science. So there were quite a lot of universities that were damaged by, by this war. You know, the campuses were bombed, the libraries were destroyed. If I'm not mistaken, 14 universities were destroyed in eastern and southern Ukraine, and they were moved to other places. And again, we have some historical experience with that, because that's what happened after the occupation of Crimea and occupation of Donbass in 2014 and 15. There were universities that migrated to other cities. So we kind of have experience in doing that. And we again activated this experience. But now the scale is much, much larger. So we need to think how to decentralize education in a way. That's one challenge. And another challenge which Ukraine faces now is brain drain because of a lot of uh, you know, high quality specialists, professionals, scholars and students, they either interrupted their work and studies. For many of them, it makes no sense to study literature now. They just yeah. want to be volunteers or they want to go to army. Some of them simply don't know how to resume, you know, because their laboratories were damaged. But some of them already abroad. Some of them are in Poland, in Germany, in Canada. And it would be very difficult for us to, to bring these people back. And in this sense, it's again a composition. It's a paradoxical combination of decentralization and centralization. Even though we value decentralization a lot, I think it's time to create one centralized effort, you know, sort of a big project to facilitate first to keep track of these people, to, mm -hmm. to collect some data about all students and scholars who live now in so many different countries, but also to facilitate how to bring them back and to ensure that these people can be happy, that they can find jobs in Ukraine, and then they can rebuild Ukraine. And we will be working on that quite a lot at Kiev School of Economics. We are not alone. We have partners from other universities and other organizations. We created this project, which we called Ukrainian Global University. And so far, it's very small. You know, it's just a web page. And it's a small database of a couple hundreds of students. But the idea is that we want to make it a bigger project to not only to track those who are abroad, but also to to build community, to ensure that they have some standardized um, curriculum mm -hmm. and to help them to go back through offering some internships and job opportunities. So we will be working on that, I'm sure, in the next decade. No, actually, I've seen some of the news on that. I find it really, really fascinating. And this gives me an opportunity to ask you just a couple of questions so that I can get clarification. So because I've also seen, I, I want to say NYU is partnering with you. Is that correct? And there's there's a lot of partners that have already already signed on. So maybe you can tell mm -hmm. tell everybody a little bit about what it means to be a partner. And also, where I've been a, a little bit confused is if this is a if this is an effort to coordinate and and be able to say these things are equivalent if you did them at NYU or if you did them at Hunter or if you did them back at at Kiev. Or is it an effort to find online courses that go out to students? How, does, how do we understand that? Oh, yeah, it's everything, but it's divided in different tracks. So we have track of students who are abroad. We have track of students who are in Ukraine. And we also have track for scholars who are in okay. Ukraine. So these are three different groups. And we want to help everyone. So regarding the first group, people who are abroad, I'm afraid that I'm going to sound kind of cynical, but this is a reality which we face. 
so many organizations around the world, in North America, in Global South, in Europe, Asia, so many organizations, they try to help the Ukrainians now because everyone wants to, to do something. Unfortunately, this help is not always efficient. People say, well, we can host one student or we can give one online course to this student or a dormitory for three months. And then, and here is the cynical part, I anticipate that, you know, in six months, in 12 months, there will be some sort of a fatigue. People will forget about Ukraine and Ukrainians and all these people, they will be lost and they will feel abandoned and they will feel that they are not on equal footing with uh, other students in host countries. So we want to change that. And that's why we talk, we address universities and we lobby and we ask and we are very we ask for a lot. <laughs> so uh, We ask our partner in universities to offer full financial support to the students, you know, to give them scholarships or tuition waivers so they can study as bachelors or masters or PhD students. And uh, it's very difficult because, you know, it's a matter of budgets. But we also learned that sometimes universities, they have budgets and they have motivation to help. They just don't know how yeah. to. Or sometimes they don't have this, they don't even conceive the idea that there is a demand for something else. But once you get in the room, once you talk with these people, suddenly things change, you know, their eyes start to shine and they say like, wow, we can do that. We can do something else. We can do something more. We can unlock another like resources uh, and rechannel them. So we are trying to do that. We are talking with the uh, universities and to give some practical examples, for instance, we have uh, this partnership with the University of Pittsburgh, with uh, UMass, Massachusetts, with Northwestern University, with NYU, and they all offer something new and something creative. For instance, NYU, they have this campus in Prague, in Czech Republic, and basically they said, okay, we will accept Ukrainian students. For one year, we will give them some sort of a scholarship and uh, dormitories. And they did not have offer for, usually this is the offer for American students mm -hmm. to go to Europe and spend one year there. But they realized that, okay, there is demand for that. There are a lot of Ukrainian students in Czech Republic. Why not to offer these courses to them? And it would be very difficult to convince to do it for one student only. But right. when it's a project and when you say, well, we have 20 students and 30 students, then it becomes more feasible from a managerial perspective. It, it sounds a bit yep. counterintuitive, but from managerial perspective, it's much easier to help 30 students than one student. Yep. So uh, that's what we are trying to do. And uh, with other universities, like with Northwestern or Pittsburgh, we do something else. We are trying to help those students and scholars who are in Ukraine. So basically what they do, they either provide online courses, which is nice, uh, so people can resume their studies why not and we will accept the credits but also they help us with uh, financial support so the idea is that the original idea for many universities is to invite people to them to say well we have okay. one postdoc position in northwestern or we have one postdoc position in berlin but what we ask and again it's a big ask we ask to channel this money to Ukraine. We say like, okay, you have money, you want to hire someone, why not to hire someone in Kiev? Or why not to hire someone in Lviv? So we frame it as non-residential uh, scholarships. And apparently it's possible. 
and our partners were quite motivated to do so. So the idea is that in order to make sure that everything is legal and there is compliance and we can pay all taxes and everything, the easiest solution would be that they transfer this money to our university, to Kiev School of Economics. We form a commission, a committee to appoint these non-residential fellows mm -hmm. with uh, zero overhead. So basically everything is transparent. The money go uh, from one university to another university. We identify these scholars who need help. We appoint them and then they can receive financial support. But they also, they are not free riders. It's not just they receive money for nothing. They will give online lectures or online workshops to their fellows in uh, Northwestern or in Pittsburgh or in whatever. Fantastic. That's really, I mean, like I said, this is an example of many of the things that you're doing, but I think it's, it's a, also a really great example of how we can think outside the box a little bit and come up with solutions, especially you and your colleagues are always saying to make sure that Ukrainian voices are heard. And I think it's also about identifying Ukrainian needs, right? Not imposing our vision of what is, what's needed or what's the solution onto Ukrainians. So with that, I just want to, again, thank you for taking time. I know that, it's, that you're very, very busy. And also to invite everybody to look at the Kiev School of Economics website and to see what's being done and, and how they might also be able to help because it's, it's just great initiatives. So thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm, I was very happy to spend this hour with you. Don't worry. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's almost a vacation for me to, to, to put other tasks and to talk about research and universities and um, science with, uh, with a colleague. So thank you for this opportunity. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. To learn more about the Ukrainian Global University and how you can help students and scholars proceed with their studies, go to uglobal.university. Thank you.